You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey there, and welcome to Social Science Fiction. So, I'm sure some of you saw this coming. I needed to do a cyberpunk episode in honor of the release of Cyberpunk 2077. And if you're not familiar with video games, this is the new big video game release from CD Projekt Red, the company that brought us the Witcher video games. And this game is something that I and a lot of us have been anticipating and looking forward to for literally eight and a half years. The game was announced in 2012, and we've been getting trailers and little bits of information for years since, and it's finally out. And reviews are really mixed. And I'll talk about my first impressions of the game at the end of the episode, but for this week, I want to talk about the setting of the game, I want to talk about the larger cyberpunk genre a little bit, and what this genre tells us about politics. So, I've always loved the cyberpunk genre. Blade Runner is one of my favorite sci-fi movies ever, and I think I like cyberpunk in part because it gives us a different kind of dystopia. I think in general, dystopia stories fall into one of two camps. One is the 1984 totalitarian dystopia, where you have a tyrannical government watching every move you make and oppressing you. And the other is the Mad Max dystopia, where we are post-apocalyptic, everything is in ruins, there's no government, there's no order, it's just everyone for themselves, and Lord of the Flies time, people running around killing each other. So, dystopia tends to be too much government or not enough. Totalitarianism or anarchy. And cyberpunk stories usually give us this third route, where we're not post-apocalyptic, in fact, we have progressed technologically. We have bigger buildings, cooler stuff, lots of consumerism, lots of products available to people, but also minimal government. Usually cyberpunk stories, governments don't exist anymore or they're not that powerful. They've been replaced with corporations, but the corporations bring us some of those elements of totalitarianism. So cyberpunk kind of blends a lot of different dystopia tropes. You have minimal government order and lots of Mad Max-style violence on the streets combined with technological progress. And here in the cyberpunk genre, rather than being the source of problems, anarchy is often held out as the solution. I think a lot of heroes in cyberpunk stories tend to land more towards anarchy on the political spectrum. So it's an interesting different kind of dystopia. And I think right now it's the kind of dystopia a lot of people would say we're more likely heading towards. But before we talk about that, let's talk specifically about the setup we get in Cyberpunk 2077. Let's talk about the political setting of the game. And before we start, I should say I'm not an expert. I never played the tabletop cyberpunk game before, which the video game is based on. And I'm only now diving into the video game itself. So this is new to me. But this is just what I've learned from doing some preliminary research and getting into the game a little bit. So, if you're not familiar, Cyberpunk 2077 takes place in Night City, a massive metropolis in Northern California. And at the time Cyberpunk 2077 takes place, Night City is basically an independent city-state. The background here to the video game and the larger tabletop role-playing game is it's set in an alternate history that sort of diverges from our real history sometime in the 1990s. 
And in this alternate history, we see a series of wars between the United States and South American countries. The Soviet Union breaks up, but then reforms. A lot of the countries of Europe join together into a European Union-style organization. But basically, ongoing warfare weakens a lot of these states. The governments end up losing power. A lot of them end up collapsing. And by the time we get to 2077, the United States has broken up. A whole bunch of states have declared independence, split from the United States. And this seems to be something that's happening in other places in the world. A lot of countries are sort of collapsing. And into this power vacuum has stepped big multinational corporations who are taking on more of the role of governments. They're wielding more power. They're fielding armies. In some places, they seem to be enforcing law and order and providing a lot of the services you expect governments to provide. And so in the immediate lead up to Cyberpunk 2077, what we learn is Night City is a major city in Northern California, which itself has split from the United States and declared its independence. And just as the United States launches a new war to try to bring all these territories that have broken from it back under its control, it looks like the United States is going to retake Night City. They've got a battalion camped right outside the city. It looks like they're going to invade. And sort of at the last minute, at the request of someone on the Night City City Council, the Arasaka Corporation, one of the big multinational corporations in the game universe, Sail a supercarrier, which sounds like a massive aircraft carrier, into the bay around the city and sort of park it there. And the United States government backs off. And shortly after a treaty is signed, recognizing that Northern California gets to be independent. And further, Night City itself gets to be independent of Northern California. Night City becomes now its own separate, official, sovereign city-state. And so a lot of really cool stuff going on there, just in the setup to this game and the city it takes place in. What we see is a lot of classic tropes of the larger cyberpunk genre. Governments collapsing, corporations rising to take their place, and rivaling, in some cases surpassing, states in terms of power. And I just love how this all plays out as it's described in the game. Especially the bit about people in Night City sort of inviting this big corporation, Arasaka, into the city to sort of gain protection from them. And then Arasaka sailing this aircraft carrier out to kind of scare off the United States. And in political science terms, what's happening is Night City is sort of seeking an ally to balance against the United States. They're playing balance of power games. Night City recognizing we don't have the power ourselves to fight the United States government. So we need to ally with somebody else, even if possibly it might not be on terms that we necessarily like. If we're to scare off the people that are a threat to us, we need to seek an ally. And so Night City goes to the Arasaka Corporation. And the Arasaka Corporation, seeing they have something to gain from this alliance, sort of they use this as a backdoor to get back into the city's politics. Arasaka sends a single super aircraft carrier. Not going out to specifically start a war, Arasaka doesn't go and start bombing people. What they're doing is signaling to the United States, we are extending sort of an umbrella of protection around Night City. If you attack them, you're starting some shit with us. So they're seeking to deter aggression rather than fight a war. Something in political science we refer to as extended deterrence. So deterrence is when you have weapons and make threats 
to deter an attack against you, against your country. Extended deterrence is when you use your weapons, your threats, your status to extend your deterrence to countries, to territories outside of your borders. And so that's what Arasaka is doing here. Sailing this one ship in, which signals to the United States, we have a presence here. We're sort of taking responsibility for this territory. You attack Night City, you attack us, and now you've got to fight a war with us. And are you prepared to do that? And the United States backs down. The United States assumes this isn't a bluff on the part of Arasaka, concludes they don't want to fight this major corporation with their technology and their military. So the United States backs down, signs a treaty. And by the way, in the real world, this kind of thing is fairly common. During the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to deter one another from interfering in their own spheres of influence. The United States was constantly concerned about how to make sure that the Soviet Union wouldn't invade Western Europe and how to prove to the Soviet Union, yes, if you invade Western Europe, we will respond ourselves. The United States was concerned with, and continues to be concerned with, demonstrating to North Korea, if you invade South Korea, you're going to have to fight us. That's a large part of why the United States continues to keep troops in Korea. Those troops aren't sufficient to repel an invasion if North Korea invades, but they're there to show the North Koreans, if you invade, you're killing American troops, you know we're going to have to respond to that. And so you're going to be in a war with us. So this idea of extended deterrence is common. This idea of putting troops or naval force in the territory you're seeking to protect is a common tactic. And even specifically the use of naval forces, aircraft carriers, is something we see fairly often in Asia. Something you'll hear from time to time is about how naval maneuvers are happening around the coast of Japan and Korea and China. And usually what you see happening is somebody will make some threatening statement, maybe China makes some statement that scares the South Koreans or scares the Japanese, and the United States will suddenly announce, you know, we're doing naval exercises. We're sending an aircraft carrier into the Pacific around Japan. And officially, they play it as, we're, we're doing this for just standard naval exercises, but what everybody knows is going on is the United States is sending their big naval units to the region to kind of signal to China, hey, we're still here. We take this seriously. If you start something, we're here to stop you. And the Chinese do the same thing with the United States. The Chinese will usually respond with naval maneuvers of their own. You'll see it sometimes in the Gulf. We'll send a fleet to the Persian Gulf when Iran starts rattling its sabers or some problem occurs. So this use of naval forces to kind of signal to a rival, we're here and we will oppose you if there's a problem. Fairly common thing. And so again, in Cyberpunk 2077, what we see is Arasaka employs these tactics, and it works. The United States backs down, Night City gains its independence, not just from the United States, but from Northern California as well. And so we see Night City no longer part of a country. Night City is its own independent entity. And Arasaka gets out of this basically a seat at the table politically within the city. Further background to the game is Arasaka sort of got kicked out of the city in the 2020s because of events that are dealt with in the game. And this was their way back in. We offer you protection and now we expect political representation. And so Arasaka gets seats on the city council. And this is an interesting setup for how the domestic politics of Night City work. As I understand it, basically, Night City is a mayor in city council political system, and the mayor is democratically elected by popular vote, but the city council 
is made up of representatives of all the various major corporations operating within the city. So a little bit of democracy, but it seems like most of the power lies with the city council, and the city council is completely non-democratic. It's just the big corporations who wield power. And again, Arasaka got a seat at that table thanks to intervening to defend the city's sovereignty. And so basically, Arasaka and these other corporations run the city. It's their regulations that seem to determine what goes on in the city and what doesn't. So, pretty standard setup for the cyberpunk genre. The withering away of old governments, the rise of megacorporations, bringing with them remarkable technological progress, but also horrible consequences in terms of people losing a lot of the protections of old governments and creating a very stratified society of haves and have-nots. If you can afford the new technology and you're in good with the corporations, you're living good. If you can't, you're on the street. So all very cyberpunky. And as I hinted at before... A lot of this speaks to concerns or expectations or predictions some people have about the future of our world, especially with regard to the future of the state in world politics. Now, today we kind of take it for granted that the world is made up of a system of independent sovereign states. All the territory in the world is divided up into the United States, France, Iran, Iraq, China, Japan, South Africa, Kenya, Venezuela, Colombia, and so on. But the world hasn't always been this way. Prior to the emergence of the state in Europe in the 13 and 14 and 1500s, the world was made up of a lot of different kinds of political organizations. We had massive empires and little city-states and leagues of city-states where independent city-states sort of joined together in federations. We had large pieces of territory that were just completely ungoverned to one degree or another. And the state, the idea of we're going to have clearly defined territories with one government ruling over that territory, and the idea that the world should be divided up this way, really only begins to take root in Europe by the 1600s, and really only spreads to the rest of the world by the 20th century. So the state as the primary organizing structure for territory is a fairly new phenomenon in human history. And while it seems sort of natural, just intuitive, that of course the world is structured this way, it hasn't always been. And you'll hear people arguing it may not be in the future. And cyberpunk, the game and the larger genre, sort of give us a future that some people say may come about. A future where the state sort of withers away. The state ceases to be important. And this is largely driven by new technology, which drives globalization, and the rise of big corporations. And the argument is new technology, transportation technology, communication technology, these things are going to sort of break the power of the state. A state's power is in its ability to enforce what happens within its borders. But when you have new technology that makes it remarkably easy to leave a state's borders at a moment's notice, to communicate practically instantly with people across borders, states just don't have that power anymore. Think about all the scary stuff you hear about the dark web and how it's so easy for people to evade the laws of their country on the internet. Think about all the ways 
People use recording technology and communications technology and social media to organize protests and resistance to governments, to document and reveal abuses by governments, and how a lot of authoritarian governments are clearly scared that these kinds of things are going to lead to revolutions in their countries. There is an argument that these new technologies are going to render states not exactly powerless, but far less powerful than they used to be, and that as states are reduced in power and importance, other things are going to take their place. In the words of Thomas Friedman, the world is flat. Communications and transportation technology have sort of flattened the world. It's made the world seem smaller, more interconnected. And a more interconnected world means a world where these lines on a map don't matter as much anymore. And the question becomes, if states begin to diminish, if they lose their power, if they lose their importance, what will take their place? And you'll hear arguments that maybe we're going to see states banding together to try to overcome these obstacles. We're going to see more things like the European Union. We're going to see attempts at maybe world government, where all the major states of the world join together into a single federal-style government. Some people go the other way and say maybe things aren't going to get bigger, maybe they're going to get smaller. We're going to see the return of city-states, where big cities will just break away from the states that they're a part of and become independent. When you look at cities like Los Angeles that have a population larger than a lot of countries, it raises the question, could places like this be better off just becoming independent, governing themselves, setting their own policy? And the answer Cyberpunk offers us is... Yeah, both of those things will probably happen in some places. We might see more regional governments. Cyberpunk has a version of the European Union emerging. And we'll also see the rise of city-states, Night City being the major example. But the big thing that's going to take the place of the state is the multinational corporation. This is what Cyberpunk tells us is going to happen. And again, it's something you'll hear people in the real world predicting. When you look at Microsoft and Google and Amazon, these big multinational corporations, and again, corporations that really aren't bound by the old state order anymore. They operate across state borders. They have headquarters in many different countries. You will hear people predicting that these corporations are just going to grow more and more powerful. Corporations are going to start doing more of the things we expect states to do. They're going to start offering more of the services states provide. Maybe they start holding territory and enforcing their own policies within that territory. And further, maybe these corporations begin to command more loyalty of people than states do. This is another example of how sort of the state is becoming diminished and possibly less important as the world moves forward. I think if you ask most people a generation or two ago to describe themselves, to identify themselves, most people, one of the first things they would use to describe themselves is their nationality, describing themselves based on their country of origin. People would say, I'm American, I'm Chinese, I'm French, I'm Brazilian. I think that's less likely today. I don't think the state commands that same loyalty. It doesn't drive people's identities the way it used to. I know a lot of people that display far more loyalty to Apple because they love iPhones or to Microsoft because they like the Xbox than they display to their country of origin. So states aren't just losing power, they're losing to some degree loyalty. They're losing their ability to shape people's identities. And corporations may be gaining some of that power. Could we be heading towards a future where people primarily identify as being an Apple user or someone that lives in a city with an Amazon distribution site? 
So these are things people are talking about. Could we see states becoming less important? And what's going to take their place? And if it's corporations, what will that mean for us? I know a lot of people who say they'd prefer corporations, they prefer if the free market determined more aspects of our lives. On the other hand, corporations aren't democratic. They're under no obligation to recognize any of your rights, apart from those rights that a government forces them to recognize. And without governments, what does that mean for the protection of civil liberties? So some people are possibly welcoming this kind of future. Some are terrified that we could be heading in this direction. And I should say, of course, there are plenty of people who think this is all bullshit. The state isn't going anywhere. States still have armies. They're the ones that have the real hard power. And that's not going to change anytime soon. But again, cyberpunk gives us a future where that's not the case. Cyberpunk gives us a future where corporations have sort of overcome that last hurdle. They've acquired armies. So cyberpunk giving us a future where corporations rival states in every possible regard, in terms of controlling territory, in terms of wealth, in terms of military might, in terms of how they're viewed by individuals. So is this the future we're heading towards? Does the cyberpunk genre offer us a glimpse of our future? Well, you'll find plenty of people who say this isn't exactly a stretch. And in the wake of the COVID outbreak and the varying and sometimes disappointing responses by governments to this outbreak, you'll hear people saying this is a sign that things are changing. This is going to speed this process along. We're seeing more evidence that everything is international now. Our problems cross borders freely and states just aren't going to be able to cope with this new future and something else is going to have to take their place. And could it be a cyberpunk-style future? Love to hear your thoughts on social media. Are you ready to embrace rule by Amazon and Microsoft? Let me know what you think. And that's it for now on Cyberpunk. I am certainly going to do some more episodes on cyberpunk stuff. More to come on this subject. Thanks for listening. And side rant. So this week, I just want to offer my first impressions about Cyberpunk 2077. And I'll say right off the bat, first of all, take these opinions with a grain of salt. I'm not a professional video game reviewer or anything. These are just one man's experiences. And again, I emphasize these are first impressions. I have barely finished the introduction to the game. And so I'll just say, mild spoilers, I've played basically through the introduction to the game, and I think I can say this without spoiling anything because it was revealed in trailers and previews and so on, but I've played up to the point where you encounter Johnny Silverhand, Keanu Reeves' character. So I've played up to the point where you encounter him. If you haven't gotten to that point yet, spoilers. If you've gotten past that point, and you probably have if you're playing the game, because I'm slow, then I'm not revealing anything new to you. So my first impressions of the game, I'm playing on the PlayStation 4, and I really haven't had any of the problems I'm hearing from a lot of people online. I know a lot of people are really disappointed with how the game handles on consoles. There's a lot of anger and resentment about how CD Projekt Red presented this stuff, about how they really didn't give an honest representation of what the game would play like on the consoles, and hearing a lot of reports of weird glitches and poor graphics and bugs and so on. And I'm not going to comment yet on CDPR and what they did and how they're handling it. I want to wait till I hear more details about exactly what happened. It does seem like CDPR really dropped the ball on this, at the very least, in terms of not being more upfront about how the game would play on different systems. But again, I don't know all the details yet, so I'm not going to comment any further on that. I'll just say my personal experience 
has been really good. Playing on an old PS4, the game has only crashed on me once, which is obviously not great, but it's only happened to me once. Thanks to autosaves, I only lost like 10 seconds of time. The graphics are certainly not anything amazing, but I've never really cared about that. Honestly, that's just not me. I care far more about story first and foremost and characters and then gameplay and then graphics are sort of last place for me. So I know some people are really disappointed with the graphics and how things look and I will agree it does not look as good as it looked in previews, but that hasn't gotten in the way of me enjoying it. It looks good enough for me to get into it. And I really haven't experienced many glitches or bugs. I've had one instance where a car was supposed to pull up and I get into it and the car sort of shot through a building and ended up like half tipped over and it ended up looking weird and as I got into it it still looked weird as I drove to the location. So that was a little immersion breaking, a little weird and silly. But again, I've only experienced like one or two of those things. For the most part, the game has handled really well for me. And I don't know if that's because I'm just lucky and I haven't caught any of the stuff other people are catching, but I've been really lucky so far. And so my first impressions of the game, glitches are minor, the graphics are good enough for me, and in terms of the plot and characters and gameplay, I am loving it so far. I am really into it. I am immersed in it. I'll just say, and again, spoilers for that first introduction to the game coming up now, I'll say when V's friend and partner Jackie Wells gets killed, it's the closest a video game has come to making me cry in a long time. And given that I basically knew it was coming because it was kind of spoiled by previews, which I think was a mistake on CDPR's part. Why did you reveal such a big moment in the game? But even despite that, I think they shouldn't have spoiled that for us. But even though I knew it was almost certainly coming, I was still heartbroken by it. That's how good the game has been about making me care about these characters. I really liked Jackie as a character. Meeting him and then the montage where you see him and your character bonding and then doing some missions with him and interacting with him. Just, it, it, it was so well done. I felt like he was my friend and, and I understood his motivations. I wanted to see him get to be a legend in the afterlife and make it big and be rich and famous and escape all the deprivations of the street and where he came from. Just, I understood his character and his motivations, and I cared about him and liked him, and I wanted to see him succeed. And when he ends up dying as he's on the verge of pulling off, you know, the big score that, that's going to help him make it big, it was heartbreaking. So, I mean, that's the biggest thing I can say for my first impressions. The game has so far been making me care about the people in the game. I am into it. The world feels very real. Glitches aside, it feels vibrant. I am invested. And just in terms of plot, again, this introduction has been really cool. I am eager to see what's going on now that Arasaka leadership has changed and V is apparently on the run now. It is all really, really good and solid. Now, having said all that, I do have some critiques of the game. I think first and foremost, I don't like the driving. I don't like that driving a car was added to the game. And I understand the logic of the developers. They're giving you a big city. They need to give you a means to get around quickly. And if it's just fast travel, 
then, you know, the world feels small. It feels like you're, you know, going through loading screens. You're not seeing the scale of the city. You just zip from one place to another. So you feel like it's just sort of a hub system where you start in one place and then you jump to another and another. It doesn't feel like a whole big city. So you want to encourage the player to travel from place to place in the open world and experience all that. I understand the logic and it worked in The Witcher 3, you know, giving the player Roach and having them be able to ride everywhere was important. It did make the world feel bigger and feel more real, feel more alive. And then even after you end up getting bored with it eventually and just switch to fast traveling for a lot of your travel, you still have the memories of traveling on Roach. So even though I fast travel from one city to the next, there's still that memory in my mind. There are places in between the places I'm warping to. This is a larger world, even though I'm zipping around. This is a whole big world populated with people and animals and trees and plants and so on. It all feels real and lived in. So I understand CDPR wanted to replicate that here. I understand the logic of it. The problem is in The Witcher 3, a lot of the world is wilderness. It's just open space with little dirt paths to go on, you don't have to spend any time really navigating. And in fact, once you put Roach on a road, he will just auto-navigate. You just hit go, and he starts going. And so you can just kind of relax and let Roach lead the way and enjoy taking in the sights around you. In Cyberpunk, what I found is I'm too concerned with navigating around the streets, and I'm concerned with cars and so on. And I, honestly, I don't know how you're supposed to play this. When I get into the car, it just feels very Grand Theft Auto-y. It feels like I'm supposed to just gun it and just don't worry about hitting cars or people or whatever. But the thing is, that breaks my immersion. Because I'm, I'm not playing Grand Theft Auto, I'm playing Cyberpunk. I'm trying to play a role, I'm trying to get into character here and feel like I'm inhabiting a world. And... V, at least as I'm playing him, is not exactly a hero, but he's not a monster. He's not going to run down people in the street, you know, because he's in a hurry. And at the very least, I think no matter how you play V, you're probably at the very least playing V as someone who's smart enough to not run people down when that might attract police attention. And to be honest, I haven't really messed around with this yet. I don't know what happens if you do hit a bunch of cars or run people over, but it feels wrong. It feels like, it would feel like I'm playing Grand Theft Auto and not Cyberpunk. And so I find myself being cautious and it ends up just taking a long time to get anywhere. Within a single district of the city, and I really haven't left my first district of the city yet where I played to, it feels like it's faster just to run everywhere. And then once you've unlocked the fast travel points, just do that. And so, I, again, I understand the law of giving players a car, but it just, it more takes me out of the game. And I end up not really enjoying taking in the sights around me as I drive around and spend more time just focusing on where the cars in front of me are and how to navigate around them. So the car is a disappointment. And I'll also add the couple of set pieces I've experienced so far where someone else is driving and you're shooting at stuff are really a pain in the ass. Maybe other people who play more first-person shooters and have those you know, twitch reflexes. Maybe they're better at this kind of thing. I found it to be a pain in the ass trying to hit my targets while the car is moving around and the camera shaking and so on. So just in general, the car has been a disappointment. And I'll also just add, feels like the game throws way too much at you way too quick. I feel like I've been playing for hours now and I'm only just exiting like the introduction slash soft tutorial part of the game. Like you have an actual tutorial that lasts like an hour or two and then you have several more hours of kind of soft tutorial where you know you're into the game but they're still really introducing new concepts to you and it's a lot. 
and it's a lot thrown at you at once, and the game doesn't always do a good job of explaining all of it. I, I've already had to get online and look up guides for how the leveling works precisely, and what perks are important, and which ones don't really have the effect you think they do. And hacking is still intimidating as hell for me. So it's just overwhelming at first. And on top of all that, as soon as you get into this introduction area, they throw a lot of quests at you really quick. And some of them are just way too overleveled for you to start. It just seems like if I were to redesign it, I would make that introduction area, what I've played up till now, really just more linear. Just have you go step by step, don't throw other quests at you, don't give you a lot of other stuff, and have more opportunities in that introduction for the player to experiment with some specific systems in the game. And then after you finish that, then cut the player loose into the open world and say, okay, have at it, do what you want to do now. So I think those things are my big critique so far. The driving and just the sheer amount of stuff the game throws at you as you jump in. And I feel like, sadly, these things are going to turn a lot of people off. I think a lot of people who aren't into these kinds of games, into this really heavy stuff, are going to be turned off or intimidated, and they're going to leave. Again, it was intimidating for me, and I love these kinds of games. So I can't imagine what it's like for someone who doesn't play these kind of hardcore RPGs and are just getting it because, you know, they think it looks cool or whatever. So yeah, those are my critiques so far. But honestly, minor critiques in the grand scale of things. My recommendation is if you're into this kind of thing, if you're into these big RPGs, if you like CD Projekt Red stuff, and if you like a good sci-fi story, and if you're getting it on console and willing to roll the dice on bugs and glitches and graphics, get it. Pick it up, play it. It is, in terms of the stuff I care about, it is phenomenal and well worth your time. And again, I'll probably update as I play more. Maybe this will change. Maybe I'll finally start hitting some of those bugs and glitches that other people are encountering. Maybe I'll change my mind. But as of right now, I am thrilled with it. And I'm probably going to go play more right now. So I think that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, love to hear from you on social media. Let me know what you like about the show, what you don't like. I love to hear suggestions for future episodes. And especially this week, if you're playing Cyberpunk, I'd love to hear your thoughts so far. Are you liking it? Are you getting a lot of the bugs and glitches I'm hearing about? Let me know. You can reach me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at Social underscore Sci underscore Fi, and you can email me at Social Science Fiction Show at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week. 